Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers hosted by me, Patrick on Lamps. How's it going, Hats? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's uh, episode 72. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we have Shah back on the podcast to talk about deliberate practice and learning of archetypes. So hello, Shab. Hey, uh, really happy to be back. I wasn't expecting to be invited back so soon, but I wasn't kidding. I am always ready to talk about limited. So um, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, I told you when you said that, that it was that was a dangerous offer that you gave. So I'm I'm glad you accepted so quickly. And the other thing I did want to say, I wanted to give a special thanks to Hats for taking over hosting duties last week. Um, that was a really great episode that he had with with eMoney Bags, and it was also under an hour and a half, which was an incredible relief when I received the file. So <laughs> that was for you. <laughs> so, so thank you, thank you very much for taking over me as I tried to figure out what to do when our truck broke down. Yeah, so it but worked out. But you're fine now, right? You got a new truck? Yeah, yeah, we're fine oh, nice, now. Nice big truck? A little poorer, but we have a new truck. Yeah. And um, I'm here. I found the episode to be the perfect mixture of lightheartedness and analysis. So a lot of... Um, a lot of a lot of laughing, but a lot of good information to be gleaned as well. So I really enjoyed listening. Yeah, yeah, I know it. It was really. I mean, that's I think what we go for on this show. Um, the fact that they were able to do it so well and concisely made me feel like maybe I've been the weak link of this show the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think maybe just that unique chemistry, because like uh, we sort of got on the same wavelength e-money bags in me right at the beginning and then uh and then got through the material fairly efficiently you know like who knows if that would happen who knows who knows when or why that kind of thing happens yeah that, that didn't make me feel any better hats okay so <laughs> if you'd like to if you'd like me to be more efficient i can say nothing for this entire episode and then see what happens well no no i'm i'm sorry i'm glad you and eric have such great chemistry and work so well together all right so shall we talk about our draft weeks uh yeah let's do that did you do any drafts this week cats uh yeah i did i i did a couple of days where I had a couple of days where I drafted a little bit, um, and I've been doing pretty well. Uh, again, when I play less, I do I play better, so that's been that's been true. And um, I don't know, yeah, yeah, not much to say about my draft week except that it's going well. I'm still not a big fan of the of the of the uh of the format i'm trying to figure out a better way of saying that because i've said it for the last four episodes uh just the lack of good cards in the in the middle two packs but i've kind of i've kind of found a way to approach things where i'm not uh mad about it the whole time uh and and it means that i'm often not sure what factions i'm playing until pack three like most of the time now 
And that seems to be fine because I'm not missing out on a lot of good picks in pack two uh, because there aren't any good picks in pack two, you know. So once I've once I get like a rare or a couple of uncommons that are better than my than one entire faction, then I just cut that faction and go with whatever that rare or uncommon is and I'll get enough playables in in the other packs. And that seems to be working out fine. Um and then occasionally, like my last good draft, I'll just get a whole bunch of rares in one faction, and then it doesn't matter what any of the other cards are. I'll just play filler to support those. And that's kind of what happened when you and I drafted together a couple of weeks ago, was we got a couple of good fire rares, and then it didn't matter what the other cards were. The The deck was was strong enough because of those rares that people who didn't get those rares <laughs> were unable to fight the tech that did have the rares. This is sort of directly contradicting the last time Shab was on, where it was like, rares rares don't really matter if you have enough play skill to overcome that. That's true, but also rares are still good. <laughs> like, powerful yeah. rares. You still want to take them and play them, and sometimes they're going to be better by themselves than one entire supporting faction that you're drafting, and you should and you should uh, move to playing those. Uh, but in general, you can't count on getting them, so you got to use your skill and your smarts. That's it. Yeah, That's kind of interesting, because um, there's a Magic the Gathering podcast called Li- Limited Level Ups, and um, in their most recent episode, they interview uh, one of the people who works on this website called 17 Lands, which is like... Uh, um a draft aggregator so people like import or maybe there's a tracker for everyone's drafts and they you know so it's just like a a big automated data collection um tracker and so they were kind of like breaking down things and what they did in this episode is they sort of split the data into two sets sort of like the top 50 players like the people with like a 65% or above win rate to sort of the average to above average drafter in the 50 to 60% win rate and sort of sort of split those two sets of data to see whether, you know, like if there are any habits you could notice in like really good drafters. And um, this is a long way of a long prelude. If you want to hear more, you can listen to the episode. But one of the things that they said is actually there was no difference between average drafters and very good drafters in how often stuck with their very good rares. And so like mm. good drafters, when they pick a bomb level rare, will stick with it just as much as an average drafter. The difference is in medium level rares or medium cards, better drafters will move off of them faster than the average drafter. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like the real test of skill then is knowing which cards you is having like the the right line under those great rares where you're willing to get away from those cards. You know, like recognizing that a good rare but not a great rare is 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 still something that you can move off of. Yeah. Yeah, there was actually a good example of this in the Discord earlier. Somebody had um, an Elysian deck, and they were asking about these other Justice cards, and th- and two of their Justice cards were Wind Conjuring, which 
for the sake of this argument might as well be a rare, you know, it's on, mm-hmm. it's on that power level. Um, and I advise that they just cut all of the justice cards. Um, and they, they said that they, they hate, you know, shelving those picks, you know, that they, that they made early on when they were trying to figure hate just not playing those cards. Um, but that's a real, like, that's a real level up is knowing when your your deck as a whole is going to be better if you leave some of your best cards out like it will just be more consistent um so i think yeah there was a really nice nice example of that in the discord recently um i i haven't heard that episode or that podcast but i i have heard that information before that even like very good drafters don't move off of their first picks um quite as often and that 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 doesn't surprise me because we're human beings, not robots. But um, that's interesting. I'll have to I'll have to look at that. But I was having kind of this woe is me <laughs> thought like earlier. Like it's really not a great time to be the the rares aren't don't matter as much as you think they do, guy. When I'm losing most of my games to rares, and I feel like I'm mostly beating <laughs> people with rares. Um, it it doesn't feel like like the best the best time right now. But I I think. What it is more than that, because I've been thinking about it a lot, is I think it's just that the removal is so bad. It's it's mm-hmm. not that the rares or the good cards are really that overpowered. I think the the removal in this format is so scarce and so bad that when when my opponent does something powerful, I find that most of my game draw my grizzly contest or I disappear. Like I probably win this game, and if I don't, I don't. Um, so that's that's been my experience um, recently. Yeah, for sure. I think this format more than some others is is like that. Um, but also this format uh, after the after the changes to the draft packs, they took out a lot of that shadow removal, and so it makes it even made a, a problem even worse. Like I had two permafrosts in a deck, and like uh, that was you know that accounted for f- for four of the five wins that that deck got. You know, like easily <laughs> was just having yeah. permafrosts. Yeah, so if you have permafrost, if you have annihilate, like if you have just efficient removal and you draw it, like you win most of that game. It's just such a scarce commodity. Um, because somebody put up like a pack one, pick one, and for me, it was grizzly contest by a lot. Just because even though sacrificing a creature is a very real cost, um, that effect I just value it so highly in this format right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I think. What's interesting to me um, is that I do feel like there's still a lot of ways to draft this format, and it's actually part of the impetus of um, why I wanted to do this episode is because, like, I'm having a lot of success with decks that it feels like other people aren't having success with. And so, like, but I think each of these different decks can like win in their own ways. You know, like I've been drafting a lot of fire aggro decks and they don't have a lot of great removal, but like depending on what faction you pair with, you know, like what Eric said last week, you know, you have rebuke, which is a very good card in that because not only stuns, but it silences these bomb rares. And so it's obviously not quite as good as <laughs> Grizzly Conflict or Grizzly Contest and taking it off the board, but for, like, an aggressive deck, it's even, it can be even better because you're not losing some of your own, you know, you're not sacrificing your own unit, which you want to be attacking with. 
Yeah. So like I never I just don't take grizzly contests that highly. And I feel like I'm misevaluating it a little bit because it's not fitting in like the decks that I've been having success with. And it's not that it's not a very good card because there's other people, you know, like um, I think Extinction, who's always in Twitch chat, is always like talking about how great uh, Grizzly Contest is. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people are having success. And you've been having so much job with so much success with Thelm while, you know, where Grizzly Contest like really is at home. So it's just kind of interesting that like there's this problem of like rares and limited removal. And then everybody's sort of finding their own way of how to how to deal with that. Yeah, it's it's not that I think um, like I'm not I'm not playing the format a ton. It's. It's not that I think it's solved or that there's nothing interesting about it um, or there are no ways to to gain advantages. Um, but for the past few weeks, I've just been expecting a change to come like any day now. Um, and I I will draft and draft and draft if it's in like a larger context of like I am learning something about this format. Um, but when I'm just expecting it to change any day now, like I've. I've I've drafted it enough and thought about it enough that I'm uh, I don't think the gameplay is or the drafting process isn't is deep enough for me to want to continue. So for now, I'm I'm just kind of waiting around. Uh, it's not that it's not that I think there's nothing to be solved. I'm just I'm ready for a new puzzle for sure. I understand that. So how was your draft week then? It was I. It was pretty good, pretty up and down. I jammed some games yesterday. Um, I had a couple of seven win decks. Uh, I'm trying to draft like a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Um, so I had a, a seven win Rakano list. Um, I think the other one I had was Huru. I've gotten to play Bryn recently a couple of times, and she is way better than I thought just reading her. Um, so I've been been trying to draft some different decks and i had like two seven win decks and then an o3 deck um that i didn't think was going to be great but i i thought would get a win or two um and then i i drafted a felon deck that went five and three and I, I find that i'm not all that excited to play these games like it's very odd for me to to draft and then like finish my draft whether it's win or lose and then not immediately just jump back into an, like another draft um but these days I'm mostly uh, going into Discord or going into Twitch and just helping other people draft. So uh, my draft week is fine. I, I again, I think it's just like the the games where I draw my removal, my grizzly contest, or my disappear. I tend to do well, and uh, some games I, I just get run over. So I don't know that I have any any great larger insights on this format specifically. At least not no new ones. Yeah, I've actually had a very similar week. I, I started the week with two seven-win decks. One was a Cambrai aggro deck. And then I also had um, a, a fire-based aggro deck. And then that got seven wins. And then I had um, two Huru decks. And this is kind of like what I was saying. One of the impetuses for the show is I keep drafting these Huru decks. And Huru is obviously open. Everyone, all the good drafters are drafting Huru all the time. Somehow it's always open for them. 
somehow everyone's winning with Huru. And I cannot get a win with Huru. I don't understand. I draft, in my mind, great-looking Huru decks, and then I go 2-3. And um, no matter no matter <laughs> what I do. And I keep ending up in Huru. And it's been, like, very frustrating. And then I draft, like, a very, very mediocre fire deck. And then I'll get, I'll go 5-3 or I'll get seven wins. And and <laughs> I don't understand it. And the same thing with just all, a lot of my time decks. Oh, that was my other fire decks. This is going to go against my point. Is I had a, a, a five attack matters Praxis deck that did really well. But, like... I think there the key were all the great fire cards I had as compared to all the great time cards I had. Because every time I draft a time deck and I'm like trying to be a little bit slower and more mid-rangey, and this happens with my Huru decks too, my opponents are just going so over the top of what I'm doing that I just feel like I can never win. Like as no matter what I'm doing, my opponent plays something bigger. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I lose. This compared to with the fire decks, since I, maybe it's just no one's respecting aggro, and so you can just get in enough chip damage that then you can like, even when they're stabilizing, they're you know feel like they're stabilizing, they're still low enough that you can like finish them off, and that's how I've been winning a lot of my games. As compared to every time I draft a non-aggro deck, I just like feel helpless. It's my no matter like how big of a deck I think I've made, my opponents still somehow go over the top of me. It's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was my that was my draft week. <laughs> Hats, do you draft a lot of Huru? Because I, I don't like I've drafted a, a few, but it's I see people draft it way more often than than I draft it. I drafted it uh, quite a bit near the beginning when they the last time they they switched the draft packs. I I started off drafting Hoover and I was having some success with it. I haven't been doing it that much lately because I'm trying really hard to draft what's open because it's the only way I've ever had any success in this format. Whenever I force anything, I I lose real hard. So. Uh, sometimes I'll start out with Huru and then just move off of it. And I don't, I've, other than that deck with the two permafrosts that I mentioned, I haven't ended up in Huru for a while. And that deck, even with good removal, had such a bad unit spread that I wasn't able to go more than five wins with it. That's still good. That's still a good draft. And it was a mediocre Huru deck. So I think it's still strong. Um, but um, I'm not like, I'm not in Huru as much as I was, but I think that I don't know um, what the key to it is exactly, but I do know that I, I like Frost in my Huru decks because they're very tempo oriented and sort of temp controlling the board temporarily seems to be a very powerful thing. And also as many flying units as you possibly can or ways to send things into the air seems to be key. Because you're going to run out of uh, strength on the ground compared to what your opponent is doing. So you really need to be able to do that last damage in the air. Other than that, I don't know. Uh, it, it's mostly that Justice's cards are good. And then Primal has uh, stuff like Changey Stick and ways to make flyers, at least temporarily. And that's, uh, and that's how you actually win with the deck. And yeah. then if your opponent has bombs, you frost them. until, And hopefully you can win before the bomb takes over the game. 
Yeah, my has, opponent seemed to like chain three of the bear together, and it's suddenly like a nine fifteen, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. just like, well, that's part of it. Yeah, as you do never, those tricks with like finest hour and then imbue it, that kind of thing. <laughs> never and beating that. I haven't drafted a bunch of the Huru decks, but like I can see why people are attracted to them because. Like, I did win a couple of games where, you know, I just all of a sudden did, like, 14 damage or something in the air with a cartographer. Like, you, there are turns where you do silly things and you win games you have no business winning. Um, and there may be, like, a blueprint for how you do that consistently. Um, I don't know it because I haven't drafted enough of the Huru decks, but it's... It seems very like it's a very delicate balance between the the tricks and the units. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if people lean more towards that deck because like the wins feel really sweet um, and and people, you know, maybe subconsciously chase that feeling. Um, so I have had decks definitely where like where you make it work. But I think it's just that the primal and justice cards are really good. Like I don't think yeah. you need to do anything. I think that's a big part uh, of it. When they changed the draft packs, they they didn't. Uh, they didn't. They didn't hurt uh, Justice and Primal as much as they hurt the other factions. Like Time and Shadow and Fire, all took big hits in the card quality. But Justice is fine, and Primal might be better. <laughs> yeah, I think it is absolutely. All right. Shall we move on to announcements? Let's do. Okay. So, as always, we like to thank all our patrons here at the beginning of the show, um, which you can find if you would like to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash farmingeternal, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to our show notes and recording bloopers. Um, so, no new patrons this week, but as always, we like to thank our veteran patrons, Cotillion, Low-Key Trickster, Sigma Tank, Mercurial Blue, Abinego, Meagles, Madness, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Jed the Homrid, Raven Dragon, Estridge 0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yist Out. So thank you very much. We really appreciate all your support. And uh, we're bringing back a segment. Uh, Shab had someone they wanted to shout out, shout out this week. Yeah, so I took a look at the show notes and saw that one of the new contributors was Who Does That? Um, So I wanted to give them a little shout out because they left a comment on one of my articles with like a little cheat sheet that they made themselves for draft um, with just some guidelines to follow, which I thought was awesome. And since then, they've posted like in the master's celebration um, section of the Farming Eternal Discord. So they've gone from there. And I think at the latest update, they were like 25th or something. So they seems like have been drafting a lot and just getting better and better. So um, new contributor who does that is the listener of the week. Um, seems like yeah. they're, they're doing the, yeah all the right things. So where can you find their little cheat sheet? It's just at the in the comments of one of your articles on your blog. No, it's on the on the comments on one of my articles on the much more readable eternalwarcry.com, okay. I think is where, or maybe it was on Reddit. I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll try to find it. Or who does that? If you're listening, please just uh, put it in the Discord um, to share with everyone else. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you very much for that. Um, so on to card of the week. So I'm going to start this week because uh, I'm kind of cheating with my card of the week. 
uh, I wanted to talk about the two cards that were affected in the most recent balance patch, which is Backbreaker, which is now six Shadow Shadow um, plus six attack and one armor. And it has summon gain armor equal to your justice influence and dark blade cut purse, which is two fire fire. And it's now a two one instead of a two two. And then has overwhelm plus attack equal to your shadow influence. So it felt like these were the two changes that would most affect um, draft going forward and in my opinion sort of very even though these are draftable cards it the changes will minimally affect their usefulness yeah yeah i would agree with that uh backbreaker costs one more and it is almost exactly as powerful in draft as it was before (laughs) you're gonna you're gonna want it at the same times, which is when you're in shadow and you're also playing justice. And, yep. And then, and then dark, dark blade, blade cut purse. I I also think not a lot of like one damage ping effects, um, and two damage wasn't. And so whether it had it's whether it has two health or one health, it still sort of dies to everything, more or less. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think you're always going to want a dark blade cut purse at the same time that you that you wanted it before. Like in terms of pick order and like how attractive it is as a card, it's probably almost identical to be- yeah. the to before the changes. Though I think there will probably be times when like someone goes mischief yeti, and then the other person goes dark blade cut purse. <laughs> 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 and, then it's, and then it's levitated to snowball, so that'll probably happen to someone. But it's it's not going to be common enough that you should not take your dark blade cut purse for your stones card deck. Yeah, I don't think that it, it affects uh, pick orders really for me at all. I, I played backbreaker at six in the deck yesterday. Still great. Yeah, <laughs> still great. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that I would keep an eye out for cut purse is if they change the draft packs up. And then maybe you start getting like cards like Torrential Downpour or uh, the uh, that fire card from last set that deals one damage to two units or something. You know, like if the draft packs change significantly, its value might go down. But as for now, still a good card. Yeah, agreed. All right. And so, Hats, what is your card of the week? My card of the week is Steam Rider. Steam Rider is uh, it's a three fire fire three three unit, and it is a Yeti. Uh, with, when you have two time influence, it has deadly. When you have two primal influence, it has flying. Uh, so so you're you're smirking at me because I think the last card of the week I had was uh, was the justice version of this card, and it seems like I'm just running through this whole cycle. And maybe that's and what I'm going to do. you've Dune Diver before. And I've done Dune Diver as well. So I think these are interesting cards, and I'm going to keep talking about them. <laughs> so this isn't a 3 four, 4 for 3, so its base rate, 3-3 three, three for 3, is obviously worse uh, than the justice version. But its abilities are insane. Um Steam uh, a three three with deadly for three is great because it can attack into anything and then anything with deadly can block 
Uh, and then when if, if I do end up in Skycrag, I think I want these more than any other card. Um, it's obviously made for Skycrag, but it's kind of one of the reasons I would play Skycrag at all um, is uh, the fact that you get a 3-3 flyer for three. That's a powerful card. So the more Steam Riders, the better. I think I had three of them the last time I played Praxis, actually, and 3-3 Deadly for three. Uh, I'm, they were responsible for a lot of my wins. I I think that out of the cycle of cards that get abilities that get get potentially two abilities depending on your influence steam steam riders are the most dramatic like the other cards the base stats are kind of the attractive part of them um, and then the abilities are sort of a little, a little bonus uh, like the three four for three gets quick draw and overwhelm which are fine but. Uh, not dramatic in a unit that has lower strength than health. Uh, but Steam Rider is completely transformed when it gets any of its abilities, so it's almost worth building around. Um, to the point where if I can get like uh, some seats, like some ways of just sort of sneaking in some extra influence, or one of the spells that makes extra influence... I'll I'll play it just so that I can get a Steam Rider an an extra ability where I don't think I would do that for any of the, any of the rest of the cycle. Yeah, those are my thoughts. So I pick up Steam Riders fairly high because I know that it has that potential. I, yeah. I guess, and I'm not sure how many people do that, but I treat this like a premium uncommon. And uh, considering how I don't I often face them, I feel like maybe I'm I'm doing that where some other players aren't. Do you think with the when it's when it's in praxis? Because I feel like the weird thing with me uh, for this card is like in praxis, it it turns into a much more defensive creature in my mind. Um, I, I think it. I think that's actually not its greatest strength in praxis. It obviously can be used as a defensive uh, unit in in praxis, but sometimes you want like sometimes your three drop gets outclassed you know you get you run into a caravan guard and it's a three five and you can't attack into it and one of the ways to deal with that is to get combat tricks or just to draft a lot of things that have five strength and can attack through anything but steam rider is a three three that gets to attack into a three five uh mm -hmm. once it has deadly so you just can get to continue applying pressure and then if they decide to block with their caravan guard then they don't have something with five health when you start dropping five threes um, later on, you know, like you've just sort of cleared the way. So I find that it's very good as an aggressive unit in Praxis. At least that's how I used it the last time I drafted Praxis, and it worked really well. Uh, I'm glad that you decided to talk about this one because hearing you talk about the cycle, like my immediate knee jerk reaction is well, of course, Acrid Scorpion is the best one. <laughs> like that is just my immediate felon like bias, like a three five lifesteal um, is just so good. But as I think about it, like when I build a found deck, if I don't have scorpions, I can put hardy warriors in my deck and be just as happy with them. Um, but I'm struggling to think of something that fills that same role, like that you're talking about. Like Steam Rider fills a very unique role, I think, in both of those those archetypes. So I I think I didn't think so before, but I think you may have swayed me that yeah, it probably is the best, better than I gave it credit for. It probably is the best card in the cycle. 
Yeah, if you guys were saying bad things about Active Scorpion, I wouldn't come on the show. Like, that's not a show I'm interested in being a part of that says bad things about Acrid Scorpion. Um, Fair enough. But I think that Acrid Scorpion is more replaceable than Steam Rider. Yeah, you play it if you're in Found for sure. Um, and uh, you almost certainly play it in Xenon as well. But you don't need it. You've got other things that do similar, that have similar functions. All right, so Shab, what is your card of the week? So my card of the week is Reality Snap. Um, Reality Snap is a time card. It costs six power. It is double time. Um, it's a fast spell, and it bounces two things. It has revenge. Um, I wanted to talk about this card because when we talk a little bit later, or just in a little bit about um, like leveling up, I'm going to talk some about bias and well, I'm going to talk some about using the community because I think the eternal community is a fantastic resource for, um, for information. So I noticed that I've been getting beat by reality snap a lot, or it always looks super impressive against me, but I just never seem to draft this card. Like it never is in my deck. Um, and other people seem to be value valuing it much more highly than I was. And so I, I, I decided to do a little research into why why this might be. So in Better Ups, uh, I saw I was watching Better Up on stream, and I think it's really important to ask the right questions because if I had just gone in and be like, "What do you guys think of Reality Snap? Is Reality Snap good?" Everyone's just going to say, "Yes, Reality Snap is good," and that's not helpful. And so my first thought was maybe Reality Snap only goes in certain decks because the decks where I seen it be best are like these Praxis sort of like aggro decks and it, the and reality snap was the top end and they would just clear my blockers and and just kill me and so i thought maybe it goes in those kind of decks but not all time decks and so that's the question that i asked chat um and better up was does reality snap go in all time decks and the general consensus from better up and chat was yes it goes in all time decks and so my first hypothesis nope wrong okay so that's not what it is and so i thought about it again and i thought like well i usually like my play style i prefer a card like disappear because i prefer a permanent answer um rather than a bounce spell even a very good one and so my follow-up question was do you guys value it more highly than your first disappear and the general consensus was yes that it is more valuable it is a better card and so that's kind of how i found what i would say is this disconnect between the community and me um and I think the community is probably much more correct that this card is very good and that I was continually getting beaten by it. Um, and I think what happened, because this card, like, it, 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 when I look at it and I read it, I'm like, yeah, I, this is a card that I should love. Like, this card does a lot of what I want to be doing. Why don't I like this card more? And I think I had, like, one or two experiences with it early in the format where it was just like a really expensive bounce spell and i suspect that it just like i subconsciously had this bias against this card because it was bad for me just like the first couple of times and i think i've just been avoiding it um and i i think that's incorrect and it took me some time to to i think recalibrate and realize that like i'm not picking this card highly and i see other people doing it um, and I think they're right and I'm wrong and I'm not sure why, like, I'm not sure what it is about this card that I'm not getting. Um, <clears throat> so that's why I reached out and I asked some people that I trust, um, for their evaluation of this card. And so now I will value it more highly than my 
first disappear because I trust the people whose opinions I, I seek out. Sorry, that was a long-winded uh, oh, no. way to talk uh, about reality snap and not even talk about reality snap. <laughs> <laughs> that was your personal journey, and reality snap was just along for the ride. Uh, I I feel the same way about reality snap uh, a lot of the time, where I want to put it in aggro decks as the top end to, to sort of reinforce the tempo, and I'm not as thrilled about it if I'm in a slower deck because it doesn't provide permanent value. But I do like it better than disappear if it's up to... Uh, if it's between the two of those, partly because it's easier to cast, um, and uh, I'm 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 very much not taking those four influence cards very high these days uh, because I'm I'm staying open so far into the draft I can't afford to. Right. Uh, Reality snap is much easier to cast, and then you know it almost it sort of does what disappear does uh, except times four, um, <laughs> and so. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't value it that high. Um, but uh, I have had bad experiences with it. And so that's why, just like you, I've uh, I've had it sort of in my hand basically doing nothing. And I kind of kind of stuck with that initial evaluation and then only only really was excited about playing it if I had the kind of deck where you know you've got a bunch of blur haze worms and you need a lot of fast spells that are going to have some impact and it makes up for the value that you're losing by only temporarily temporarily uh, getting rid of units and that kind of thing. Um, but because I don't have as much experience with the card specifically, uh, it's, it is one of those cards where I sort of feel like, well, uh, everybody seems to love it and it does beat me. So if I see it and I'm in the uh, deck that can play it, I'll, I'll definitely throw it in there. Plus, my very initial, my very first evaluation when Patrick and I were talking about the set was that it was going to be very, very good. And then I just sort of went through months of the format without playing it very often. So I, my my opinion on it never developed beyond, uh, I think this is going to be great. And then I played it a couple of times, and I was like, nah, I don't know. And then later on, I was like, well, uh, everyone loves it, so I'm just going to throw it in decks when I can. <sighs> I didn't really add anything to what you said, but... I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's funny because it sounds like all three of us have about the same opinion of Reality <laughs> Snap because this is also a card that never seems to be in my deck. And I would love it to be in my deck, but I feel like I, I just must not be picking it highly enough. So, you know, like... Reality Snap is often not a card that I'll like first or second or even third pick. And so I just must never be seeing them, even when I'm in time, because I value other things more. And I think for me, it's the fact that Disappear is in the format. It's so like even if Reality Snap is better than Disappear, if you're in time, you can you can get Disappears so like it feels like this effect feels slightly replaceable in my mind and so i'm always trying to fill other holes instead of picking reality snap because i feel like i'll be able to get disappears later to sort of fill in that removal hole um yeah i think that's a good point um it is it is essentially replaceable for that for that exact reason um I think if Disappear didn't exist, then you'd really want it because, again, 
removal is pretty light. And so anything that can that can do that kind of damage even temporarily is worth is worth uh, considering. Yeah. And so yeah. this is always like, a, sorry, Shab, this is like always an interesting question for me is just like when you have a card that you feel like you're misevaluating. So like I want to play with reality snap more, but am I just supposed to just like take these a lot earlier to like learn how good it is, like to try to raise my view of it closer to the communities? Because I feel like without actively trying to take this higher than I'm currently taking it, I'm just never going to play a reality snap. And this is like coming from me who I feel when I look at the card, I have a good opinion. Like I think well of the card and yet it, I never draft it. And that's because other people are drafting it because they're valuing it so high. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that this is a really, this, this actually brings us to a, a really interesting point because what I think is, is going to happen with me for reality snap is I was valuing it way too low and I will having asked other people about it, value it a little bit more highly, but I still think that I'm not willing to pick it. Like, like you said, as highly as other people are. Um, so if I wanted to actively play with it, like I would maybe pick it like one or two picks higher than, um, than I normally would. But I think it really is okay to, if you feel like your evaluation of a card is, is accurate and other people are just willing to take it before you are, um, like, I think that can be a perfectly fine place to be. And the, the example that I have, Hats, did you play Magic? Do the words Legion Conquistadors mean anything to you? No, I guess I missed that one. Uh, you didn't miss anything. It was awful. But um, <laughs> Legion Conquistador, it was two and a white. It's a two-two. And when it comes into play, you can find other Legion Conquistadors in your deck and put them in your hand. And in my mind, at first, this card was unplayable. And eventually I came around to, like, this is something you can do if you want to. Like, okay, this is a playable thing. But everyone else loved it so much more than I did that it was just never a, a thing that I drafted. And it wasn't that I hated it. It was just that I wasn't willing to pick it where other people seem to be willing to do that. Um, and I think that might happen now with me with Reality Snap is I, I think my evaluation of it, I can probably put it a little more in line with, with what its actual value is. But I don't know how many more I'll end up with in my deck because I, I still don't think I value it as highly as, as other drafters do, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, you're, it's 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 just sort of in that sweet spot of uh, being a card that is already popular, um, and it, we're too late into the format uh, for everyone to be experimenting and and have a lot of cards like that still be available in packs often enough for you to experiment with them now. Yeah, but I feel like Reality Snap in particular, like I, Reality Snap and Omen Scar Worm, <laughs> I feel like just never go late or something as compared to i don't know in other colors when they're like like even when time's open it's not like you see in 
like an eighth pick reality snap or anything as compared to like maybe this is <laughs> like today i got like a seventh and ninth pick each ancient serpent in pack four and it just seems like if that happened with reality snap i would have two reality snaps in my deck but that just never happens with reality snap i'm sad about the ancient serpent <laughs> Shouldn't have gone that late. No, I got second, sixth, and eighth pick, I think, were, were how I picked up three of those. <laughs> huh. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I love Ancient Serpent. Like, when I cast Ancient Serpent, I feel like I'm just telling my opponent, this is the turn That's the turn where I start winning the game. Here's my 3-4 flyer. Here's the spell I want. Like, that is the moment in a lot of games where you start to win, is yeah. your Ancient Serpent. Yeah. Yeah, hope, hope I hope your opponent had fun up until then. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Fortunately, in that last game of that deck, uh, my opponent oopsided me on four, and uh, he hit an ancient serpent and a storm prowler. Uh, yeah, yeah. Storm storm prowler doesn't like getting oopsided. No, does <laughs> not. Made it really hard to win with a, a totally dead card in my hand. That's a that is a six six cost four primal zero zero. <laughs> not efficiently costed. When my opponent plays Ancient Serpent against me, it it like doesn't even matter what they get back. I'm just so psychologically ruined. You know, they could get back like a seek power, and I'm like, how am I supposed to come back for this kind of value? No one has ever <laughs> come back from this kind of value. Like it, yeah, it just messes with my head. I love that card. So is it crazy with uh, if you have three Ancient Serpents in your deck to play um, one of that one power uh, you and your opponent draw a card? Yes. Still think it's crazy? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you're drawing two cards to their one when you uh, when you pull it from your void. I... I think they're, even in a format as shallow as this one, I think there are probably about 500 things I would rather be doing with my Ancient Serpent than getting, except for the fact that Reflection is just like the prettiest art in the set. You're, I don't you're, know. Let me, I have you're to really also, think. You're also starting out down a card because you cast that spell in the first place. So if you Ancient Serpent it back, you're only making up for having thrown a card away in the first place. Yeah. I guess my thinking was I had my top end was so powerful i just wanted to get through my deck because i had three ancient serpents i had three urzines and i had a helio sure sure and so I, my I idea was to just yeah the wrong application yeah yeah so i'll, I'll have to think about, i about like a deck that i might put it's tough. In. That's what I was. I was like, this if of any deck, I was like, this this might be it. But it still feels bad giving your opponent a card. So. Yeah, like I yeah. There's just other spells. I don't know what I would be cutting for reflection. I guess like yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like just playing another sigil is gonna get you to your top end. Even better. 
Yeah. I guess you're not drawing through your deck to get to your top end that way, but you're going to have at least one Ancient Serpent or um, or something if you're, if you're playing three of them uh, without having to draw. Anyway, no, don't play Reflection. Okay. All right, all right. I tried. I tried. Went 4, th- two, three, 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 something like that. I went 4-3, yeah. I went 4-3 with oh, wait, you Wait, you did this? Yes. Yeah, three Ancient Serpents, thought, three Urzines, a Helio. Hypothetical. <laughs> oh. Oh, you've run this experiment already. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I felt really, the deck was really good, except I got oopsotted. And then um, turn, they oopsotted me, where, yeah. They played a Trailmaker. Then the next turn, they played the Inspiring Leadership card. And then I was like, oh, this could be dangerous. I killed their Trailmaker. Then they oopsotted me. And then they played another Trailmaker. And then they played an Omen Scarworm, turning that Trailmaker also into an 8 8. And I still almost won with the deck, but uh, having a, a, a six power zero zero in your hand the whole game really hurt. But, uh. Well, that's. That sounds that sounds like that uh, your opponent is doing something bigger than you're doing kind of situation. It did, it did feel that way, yeah. Yeah, like you thought you had the ultimate top end, and no, you could also be doing that thing that your opponent was doing. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that, that's kind of here here nor there. Um, I think that was a great discussion of Reality Snap. I think we've <laughs> solved that one. Solved, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but on to our 7-1 run breakdown. This is the part of the show where we thank everyone who contributes to our 7-win draft list spreadsheet that we do. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you can send in any 7-win drafts you do to farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them to our 7-win channel. And then we collect them in a spreadsheet so you can kind of see what people are doing, what factions are doing well. And... Um, yeah, and we sometimes do a little further breakdown, but now that we're sort of near the end of this set, we're doing a little bit less of that. But we do like to shout out everyone who's contributed and say thank you to John Holio for actually doing all of the manual labor to that. Uh, so thank you, John, and thank you, first off, to our new contributor. Uh, we spoiled this already. Who does that? Thank you very much. And then our veteran contributors are Agent Dynamo, Collector, Cotillion, Darth Herman 2, Grandar, Hats on Lamps, Iplong No, Jandy, Jed the Homerid, Meadow, Mercurio Blue, Out on a Limb, Parmalee, Potomaro, Raven Dragon, Shab, Saitar, SSJ1997, Tempest Dragon King, Titus and Blossom, Toucan, and Vader. Thank you very much. Oh, and congrats to Vader for uh, getting second place in the draft championship. Really, really well Ooh. done. Ooh, well yeah. done. Oh, now, now we're all just silent. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm not sure what's going on here. No, no, that's fine. It feels like every once in a while, just when you say something after a long pause or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so you, you want to congratulate Vader. Yeah, I was just saying congratulations um, to Vader and, and everyone, everyone else who was in the top eight and who made it to Worlds. Yeah, and spoiler alert for those of you who've made it this far into this show, next week 
we think we might have Gunner 116 on the show to talk about their journey through the draft championship and their thoughts on on drafting and the format. So we're pretty excited for that. That sounds and, cool. Uh, yeah, and if you don't know, they won the uh, the, the draft championship. <laughs> that was their prize was to be on our show and to make some money and get the worlds. No. <laughs> In that order, I'm sure. In that order, that was what they were really going for. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that that wasn't listed as one of the official prizes. Yeah, it was weird. I uh, I I just never heard back from Direwolf. It was weird. Uh, anyway, let's move on to our main topic. See, it's it's this lack of chemistry that's the real problem with this show. I think and I'm just laughing because I didn't have to win anything to be here. I just got invited. <laughs> I feel so. I don't have to you win will, my You only had to write a, a whole series of insightful articles on draft strategy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to, to win yeah. anything. <laughs> and spend all your free time in Discord. Yep. That's, that's all it takes. All it takes. So, uh, main topic? Yeah, we'll go uh, on to the main topic. Uh, this is uh, playing slash drafting outside of your comfort zone and exploring new archetypes and play styles. And to sort of get us started, I think I might have mentioned this uh, already in the episode, but sort of the impetus for me on really wanting to have Shaban to talk about this topic was twofold. One was uh, the the main thing was uh, listening to their to his episode on the Friends of Eternal podcast. That was episode forty five, which I do recommend. It was very good. Um, there was one part of it where. Shab was talking about his preparation for the draft championship and how then when he finally got to day two and was drafting, um, he really felt like fire was open and had this moment where he's like, with the changes having happened so soon to, you know, so soon from when the draft championship was, uh, Shab he didn't feel comfortable drafting fire and was like, had a, Oh no, what do I do kind of moment? And it really made me think about sort of like, what does that mean to be comfortable with an archetype and what does that, you know, and how do you realize like what archetypes are out there? What, how you should be experimenting to explore the different archetypes, just like there's so much like that little comment like spoke to me so much because it felt like there were so many topics involved with that just like like because i don't even really fully grasp like how you would even go there where you're like oh i'm not comfortable with fire let's practice drafting fire archetypes and like what does that mean in a draft context where you can't just build a deck and play it you know like um uh, Stormblast made a joke like, oh, well, of course you haven't practiced fire because it's not good. But I th- I think that was sort of belittling is the wrong word. But like it doesn't really get at like what it actually means to be able to practice an archetype in, in draft. Yeah. And then I think he drafted fire in the top eight. I think he drafted stone scar. But yeah. anyway. And what's funny, though, is you recorded that after he had already drafted that deck. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know you said that you wanted to have me on for for two reasons. Did you want to talk about the um, the fire decks and the draft championship first, or did you want to talk about the other thing as well? What order would you like to do these? I don't even remember my uh, second reason. So I was just, that was a, a rambling preamble for you to take it away. Okay, I can do that. So what I meant when I said, so to give a little recap for those who, who haven't heard the episode, I was talking about my experience in the draft championship. And the reason that I told the story specifically was um, because I really wanted to talk about my like real moment of frustration because I think that uh, getting your emotions under control is actually a huge part of being good at these games. But anyway, <clears throat> I was talking about how in pack two, I thought that fire seemed to be the most open color, um, like the, the faction I was supposed to be in. But because the packs had just changed and I hadn't really um, gotten to draft a bunch of new fire decks, like I didn't, I didn't know how to do it, like how to draft fire decks. So that's, so that's what I was talking about on the episode. And so today I'm going to unpack a little bit of, of kind of what I mean by that when I say, um, you know, I didn't know how to draft fire decks. I didn't know how they were supposed to come together. Um, so, so what I mean when I say like, I didn't know how to draft fire decks. So every, when I'm thinking about a format, um, Echoes of Eternity or this format, I think of every faction pair and sometimes like, you know, when we have mono fire, mono time, you know, mono justice, I'll look into those things as well. But usually you're just looking into the, the two factions. And so with each archetype that's in a draft format, um, your evaluation of an individual card, say a card in fire, like, um, like dark fire, it's a little bit obvious because of the, uh, the double shadow because of the lifesteal that it wants to be in a stone scar deck, but you can put it in, <clears throat> in enemy fire deck and it will be fine. Um, so what I meant was, I don't know what the core pieces are, and I don't know, so one of the things I didn't know, and I had looked at, but I hadn't internalized, was the, the weight changes in the packs. So when the packs change, they change like some units go from 10 times to one time, or from one time to 10 times, or five to 10, and these things really impact the way that your decks develop. And so because the format had had changed so recently, I hadn't had a chance to to do a bunch of these drafts and see how they play out and see like what units I really need to get in packs two and three um, because they're not going to be there in pack four or what interaction I need out of those packs. Um, so the way that I approach like, oh, am I ready to draft fire decks? Um, and the way that I came to that decision that I really wasn't prepared to draft them. So here are some of the, the questions that I asked myself is what's core to my game plan if I'm gonna draft a fire deck? Um, like, am I taking the first Flameheart Paladin? 
the two power one three with surge over the first corrosive dagger? Or am I taking the first two flame heart patrollers before I'm taking the first corrosive dagger? Or do I not need to take dark fire because, or do I not need to take gun down in packs two or three because I can just take dark fire and they'll like serve essentially the same function? Like I was saying earlier about how you could take acrid scorpion out of Thalm because you could put hardy warrior in. Um, like that's kind of a nuanced take on a format that you can pass this uncommon, even though it's really, really good because there's another common that fills that same role that does that same thing. Um, so when you really know a format, you know, you know that you can pass on this three drop because you're likely to get another one later. And I just didn't know those things when it came to the fire decks. Like if I was, were going to build, I thought time was open in pack one and fire seemed to be open in pack two, but they had just, I think like nerfed the five cost spells. Like I wasn't hundred percent sure. Like the, the changes had happened pretty recently. And, and one of the things I talked about on the episode was that perhaps maybe you can speak to this better than I can. Cause I don't fully understand how it works, but that, when the format changes, people rare draft the packs, and so you don't get a good sense of what the format is supposed to be. And then, um, <clears throat> and then we had like a week to prepare to prepare for the draft championship, um, which for me was like two days. And something that I mentioned on the episode was you can't in draft you can't just decide that you're going to build a bunch that you're going to build a bunch of fire decks. Um, because you really shouldn't be forcing any one faction. And if you just try to force it, you have a good sense of what the deck is supposed to look like when it's open. So I didn't have like even a rough, like a rough game plan in my head for how these fire decks were supposed to come together after these changes. And I think the format changed like two weeks before the championship. Yep. And the Apparently, when the, the packs change, people rare draft the packs. And so you don't get an actual representation of what the, the draft is going to be like. So you can't sure. use it as, um, like as, as really good data if you're trying to figure out archetypes or what so the draft talking, is going to look like. I was talking about this with, with eMoneyBags last week a little bit. We touched on it, which is that you can do a certain amount of abstract analysis of a draft format. It's no replacement for... Uh, experimentation, of course, but you can't. But um, but the breakdown had a lot to do with um, what kind of blockers you're likely to encounter, like what kind of defense your opponent is likely to be able to put in front of you if you're drafting fire, and then which of your fire units are going to be able to naturally break through that kind of defense. Um, and so he in uh, and and you know he, I don't know how he did in the in the final round of the draft championships, but he was in the top eight, and he got there partly because he was uh, valuing units that could attack for five very very highly, like more like warping his draft towards them because there's so few units that could block them in the format. Um, and so rather than concentrating on having a good curve, he was drafting units that would be able to attack for the entire game. 
Um, and I think that kind of analysis, which to a certain degree was abstract, like he didn't just draft fire over and over and over until he knew he went through that with his friend who helps him analyze formats and um, and and figured out like this is a path to victory because uh, there's there's so many blockers that can shut down a three three or something attacking for four. But there's hardly any that can shut down something attacking for five. And so go with that. Because if you're playing fire, you need to be able to attack effectively, and that means knowing which units are going to be able to hold their value all the way through the game. Because um, you don't really have the tools, I think, in this format, unless you get very lucky with your combat tricks and you're playing Rakano or something, uh, to be able to get your your smaller units and, and have them break through. Um, but if you have units that can continually attack naturally and be able to break through anything your opponent's likely to be able to come up with, um, then you can go with that. And so I think that's what you can do if you're unable to draft uh, draft the colors that you want to experiment with, is just look at that sort of unit breakdown, like the stats of units that you're likely to be able to, like that you're likely to have to um, overcome and and really be honest about which units are going to be effective attackers in that environment. This is specifically for fire, you know, like if you're dealing with more subtle issues, like what are the synergies in Xenon now, like how many fast spells and ambush units am I likely to be able to get to make some of these units that depend on that kind of dynamic to work, then you've got to do the analysis based on that. But if you're learning how to draft fire, then it's a very simple, like, how much strength can I put on the board and how much defenses can my opponent uh, put up to deal with it? Yeah, and cer- certainly credit to to E-Money, to Eric, uh, and I think he mentioned Sizzle. It was Sizzle um, as his friend who helped him with it, yeah. For doing that, that theory crafting so effectively. Um, because I had I considered, and it's really good for me to hear that because you know the next time I encounter something like this, that's probably more how I'll I'll approach it. Because when I sat down like the Thursday and Friday before the draft draft championship, I was like, you know, if I'm gonna try to just do a whole bunch of drafts, it it really just feels like cramming, you know, like cramming for a test. Like I've been drafting and going through my process for months. Like I, I feel like I've done all of the hard work. Like I, I don't know if my time is going to be well spent trying to just um, do this over and over and over again. And and maybe I didn't. Uh, like it sounds like I didn't approach it the right way. Um, you know, I I was aware that I had like going into it. Um, I was aware that I had some holes like in my draft repertoire and 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 i'm aware that part of that is the fact that i limit my own schedule like how much i play eternal so that i will go to bed at a reasonable hour um so i'm i'm well aware of the fact that there there is certainly work that i could not have done Uh, i mean certainly work that i could have done within those two weeks that that i did not do um it, it was disappointing that I I put I feel so many months into um, the the previous format. You know, I, I put a lot of the, the hard work into understanding that. Um, so 
there were de definitely things that I could do differently. Um, you know, I wasn't as pre I didn't prepare as much as I could have. Um, so those are the things that, that I'll try to focus on for the next one. If the, if changes are, are that close to a tournament. Yeah. Well, I think this, uh, uh, two points. One is, uh, like what you were specifically talking about earlier with, uh, people rare drafting. I think the bigger problem at the beginning of the format is, um, they have to seed all of the, they have to seed the drafts into the computer before anyone's drafted it. And that's all done with, a lot of it is done with bot drafts. And so for the first, at the very least, few days of the format, you're picking from packs that bots have drafted, not humans, which skews things. And because, you know, the packs are 12 cards deep, can, I feel like um, Direwolf has said that you sh people we should we should go through the bot drafts in like a day or something, but I feel like you can feel the the downhill of downstream effect of that for much longer, and so it really feels like the first week of a format has really crazy signals, and it's not just that people are experimenting; it's that you're getting like 12th pick legendaries and stuff just because you're pulling from drop uh, bot packs. Um, and so like I agree as like someone who has uh, more limited time on when they can play, it makes these like sudden changes really hard because like you mentioned in the um, Friends of Eternal podcast, you know, if you can only play two days of a week and the pack changes happen at an inopportune time, all of a sudden you, you know, instead of two weeks, you only have one week to prep uh, because it happened after your two, <laughs> your two playing days. Um, so that's the one yeah. point. The other point is I do want to dig deeper into like what it, what it means to sort of think about these formats uh, sort of from an analytical point of view, because um, you know, like what Eric and Hats talked about last week with fire and like that, that sort of key number of like what kind of attackers you need to have a successful aggro deck. I don't know if it's just because I tend to lean towards aggro decks that that kind of stuff seems like obvious or intuitive to me, but like that, like building a good aggro deck feels obvious because it's like um because it doesn't take long to get a sense of sort of what kind of blockers you're facing and then you just build a deck around that if the pieces are there as compared to like what hats mentioned um with like xenon where you're like okay like obviously this archetype um wants to be playing spells on your opponent's turn but like, you know, there's two questions that then come from that. Like first, are there enough of those cards? Are there enough payoffs? Are there enough enabler enablers? And then like, what does that deck look like assuming there are enough of each or whatever? You know, like it's that for me is m much harder to sort of extrapolate just by looking at the cards. 
or even, you know, like with the Huru decks I'm talking about, like, I feel like I'm putting powerful cards in my deck and yet the deck doesn't seem to be winning. And so there's like, there must be something about this archetype that I'm not necessarily grokking just from like, uh, just building decks based on straight card evaluation or whatever. Did did that lead anyone to, to anything? Well, I also, I, well, okay, here, uh, to ask specifically, Shab, so like, what kind of questions should we be asking when we're trying to learn new archetypes? So when I am trying to learn new archetypes, um, so I'm trying to think of like when I, when I approach a new format. Um, so I'll just talk about Felon because I, I talk about Felon always, but it's because it's the, it's, it's what I'm most comfortable with. Um, and so when I think of the Felon control deck, um, I think in terms of core pieces, like essential pieces that, that that deck needs. And one of the core pieces that it needs is something like a false demise, um, a recursion, a piece of recursion, something like that. And something that I can tell you about false demise in a felon control list is that the they have extreme diminishing returns. And what I mean by that is that I value the first false demise in my felon control deck extremely highly, and will pick it over a lot of what are objectively better cards. But then my second one, I I don't really have many problems passing. Um, so the way that you evaluate cards in, in cer- certain archetypes, um, it, it matters in those ways. It's not that, because when you, when you look at it in terms of just individual cards, if you were to say like false demise is really good in a felon control list, and then you end up with three or four false demises, your deck is going to be terrible. But if you apply that same that same logic to something like a siphoner paladin or a caravan guard that this card is just great and you end up with three or four of them you're going to be happy with those three or four um every single time so some of the things that i am looking for in in a new format are which of these cards are good in multiples because that will affect my pick order um like a flameheart i think i always call it flameheart paladin i think it's flameheart patroller um or like chain whip bludgeoner, like I'm pretty happy having three, four of those in my deck, um, and so I'm much more comfortable taking them early. Whereas something that I don't want to take more than one or two of, um, you know, I can just kind of pass on. So the things that I'm looking for early on in a format are just what are the because every every archetype, at least in my mind, has kind of a mental framework. And, and I'm trying to, to fill in those pieces. And in one of the articles, I talk about how you're like filling deck roles. And I imagine for like Praxis, there was a deck role for um, like five cost spells. So that is an essential part of that archetype. That is not an essential part of like some other time archetypes or other fire archetypes. Um, and so your card evaluation 
of individual cards, like a, a fire card is not equally good in a sky crag deck as opposed to a stone scar deck as opposed to um, a Rakano deck. So figuring out which cards I can draft that go into all of those archetypes, those cards go up, um, go up in value. Like if I'm just going to put it in every fire deck or every justice deck, cards like Siphon or pa Paladin, just go into every justice deck I build. So I feel, feel very comfortable. Like I used to talk about Apprentice Mage in the same way. Um, I still do. Um, so I'm looking, th th those are some of the things that I'm looking for. Which are the cards that I want in multiples and are, are good across archetypes? Um, and once I, I have those established for kind of each of, of the colors or each of the factions, then I'll start to think about, okay, now I'm, instead of thinking about time as a whole, I'm going to think about Xenon. Which cards are specifically better in Xenon? Um, sorry, I, um, I feel like I've been, I've been talking for a little bit. So that, that's kind of how, how I approach it when, when first I play a lot of games. I don't set out to figure out any one thing when I approach a new format. So those those are some of the questions that are on my mind is what is the core? Like, what's the core framework? What things do I absolutely essentially need? And in a deck like Felon Control, I would say a piece of recursion or a flyer to, to kill your opponent. Um, like if you handed me a, a Felon Control deck or a Felon deck and it had Ancient Serpents and it had Valley Clan Sage and it had Cheerful Shepherd and even Acrid Scorpion, but it didn't have a Grizzly Contest or a False Demise, I would say that this deck is missing core pieces. Like I have a mental um, archetype for what this deck is supposed. I, I have a mental framework for what this deck is supposed to be, and like this deck that I'm looking at is missing it. And when when I really like, I I feel like I really knew art like the original Argent Depths format. I will have a a mental framework for for every archetype in the format, um, and I'll have my my cards in every faction that I think you know, are, are good in the most amount of decks. Um, and then I'll have my cards, like, in one of the first articles I wrote, um, it was like, there's a big difference between Humbug Nest in a Xenon deck and Humbug Nest in just, like, a Combray deck. In a Xenon deck, it's fantastic. In a Combray deck, it's perfectly replaceable. Um, so how much you evaluate, like, how much you weigh certain cards depends on your understanding of the different um, archetypes that are available within so, within a form. So when you're approaching an archetype that you're less familiar with, one that you're like outright uncomfortable with, um, would you say that it's a good idea to uh, to identify like the key part that's that's really important? Like like if somebody's approaching film, like I don't draft film, so it's a great example for me. Um, I've drafted Felon a few times. I haven't had very much success with it unless I've had some really killer rares that justified me being in it because I just never was able to get the right ratios. Like, these are the cards that I absolutely need, even though I theoretically know having some Grizzly Contests and then a False Demise is good. Uh, it, would, it was so difficult for me to make that whole thing come together that I started avoiding drafting Felon completely. Um, so if I wanted to get back into Felon, and like learn how to draft it and even try to force it like how would i what would be the what would be the first thing that i should know well the first thing that i would do and 
I actually was prepared to talk about this a little bit with Ricano because it's a form, it's a, an archetype that I'm unfamiliar with. Let's talk about um, Ricano then. <laughs> um, because I did a little bit of homework into this. Um, we, we had a user question that I wanted that I wanted to answer, and I, I think it's useful to to frame the discussion. So I'll I'll just read it quickly if you don't mind. Um, user Abednego says, seems to me top players can succeed with any deck type while average ones, e.g. me, struggle outside of archetypes which suit their personality slash have worked for them in the past. For example, I'm naturally pretty cautious, so prefer slower decks to, say, Rakano Aggro. I did learn to play a bit more aggressively after Hats on Lamps' excellent segment in a past FE podcast, but I still struggle with it. Too long didn't read. How would you advise players to play outside of their comfort zone and succeed with whatever archetype is open? Um, so I'm not all that comfortable with with Ricano. And so the way that I would approach this, I saw Long No, whose whose name is different in the in the Discord, but he was posting some some Ricano list today. And whenever when you want to learn something, it's a great idea to to follow models. So I looked at some of his seven win deck lists. And if, if say the draft championship hadn't already passed, if it were next week and I were learning to, and I, and I wanted to draft for, like learn to draft for Kano, this is how I would approach it. So I looked at IP Longnose three, seven, O or seven win deck lists from today um, to see if I could identify any patterns. And one, I think had 17 units, 18 units, 19 units. So I, Knowing nothing else about Ricano, know that okay, if I end up in that sort of range, I'm in a good, I'm in a good place. Um, the decks had, I think, at most like two attachments, and what the rest like six spells, something like that, six seven spells. So the first thing I did was just look at at some models of what has been successful, and I only looked at three, but if I were really going to deep dive it, I would look at I would look at a bunch of them. Um, and see if see what my range was for units. So that would give me um, give me a target. And then what I did was because Longno was having success with the archetype, is I went in and and I just asked like, hey, what what is usually pulling you into into this archetype? Because I don't um, because I'm pretty much never in it. And and they said that that they were forcing it a little bit, but um, you know, but but that it was working. So there's something about the Ricano archetype, I think, that that is just successful in the format. So the first thing I did was look at what has been successful. Um, and then what I would do to follow up is if I had specific questions about the list, um, I would ask. Um, I would ask those questions, and Long No is great, so, so he would answer. Um, so that's the first thing I would do is I would get a model because I would want to make sure that that the decks that the Ricano decks that I'm drafting look similar to to what other people um, have been successful with, and I would go through the so I would go through the deck lists and look and look for outliers. Is there anything here that I don't expect? Like when I would look through some of Better Up's deck list, he started playing uh, Tinker Apprentice. And so I would ask, just like, hey, I'm just surprised to see this in your list. And so what I would go through, I'd go through the Ricano list that have been successful. I'd look for anything that stood out, you know, as strange. And and of course, 
I'm on the more experienced end of drafters, so I can do this a little bit more easily. You know, I look at a list and say, huh, that looks a little off to me. But where I would start for sure is looking at at the success, what other people have done and been successful with. And I would try to replicate that then in my drafts. And I wouldn't force Ricano. What I would do, I think the best way that I can explain it is when I want to explore a new archetype in draft, like I know given a primal card and a fire card, I'm just going to lean towards the primal card every single time. Um, so I kind of flipped that. And I almost draft as if I have a fire card already in my pool before the draft starts. And so all of my picks, I kind of lean that way. I won't force that way, but I will lean that way so that I find myself in Rakano more often. And then I will try to replicate the model and see if I have that same kind of success. Um, and if I don't, then I try to evaluate what went wrong. And if I can do that myself, I do that. But if not, I would reach out to somebody who has been successful, successful with the list um, or with that archetype. I would ask them to look at what I put together and I'd ask for feedback. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I was just, because you mentioned those three Rakano decks that Iplongno uh, submitted today, I just took a quick scan of them and... Uh, uh, just as a just as a concrete example of something that stands out to me, there are a lot of one and two drops in all three decks. There's other themes going on, maybe, uh, but but that's but even if they have to play uh, a one drop like Ticking Grenadin, which is a one one for one, um, there. I think there's a Fire Main Cub. In one of the lists there's a fire main cub in one of the lists uh there's a noble protector in one of the lists and there's only one siphoner paladin in that list and i think that's the only way to sacrifice it so uh it's it's gonna be a lot of the time a one two for one and not not any better than that um that seems to be part of it is that uh in this case in Ricano, you want a really low down curve um and then uh and then fill it in with a, only a handful of powerful, more expensive things, uh, depending on you know what's available to you during the draft. But but maybe play one drops that you wouldn't otherwise play because it's so important to get on the board, uh, and then you know put equipment or combat tricks on those little units for surprise kills. And I think that's a really good point, Hats, that to mention the one drops in those lists because you being so. Uh, somebody who's drafted a lot of decks will notice something like it's really weird that all these decks have one drops and maybe some, some suboptimal cards. Um, but it's important to notice those things because like personally, like putting a noble protector in my deck when I only have one way to sacrifice it or um, putting a fire and maiden cup in my deck, like everything in me screams, no, don't do this. But if that is what the successful, if that's what the models look like, that is how I will draft those decks. And and see if if my results are matching, um, you know the the models. Yeah, and I think it's important to look at and look at those anomalies and and decide like is this uh, is this just a, a function of, of of the fact that we can't always put great cards in our deck, or are these cards fine because they're serving the purpose that they need to? Um, and I think with Ricano specifically. Like, yeah, you don't want to put a 1-1-for-1 one, one in your deck. Um, 
but if your if your goal is is to just do as much damage as you can um and then you're fairly likely to be able to get enough uh enough combat tricks to make those make those one drops relevant further into the game uh then then you just do it and you and you like it like there there's almost certainly the ticking grenadine uh is in there over something else that was drafted and this is a 7-0 deck that has ticking grenadine in it <laughs> it's uh it was a it was a juggernaut right almost certainly that grenadine contributed to at least one win at some point um and therefore uh you, you can look at that and say uh this may not be something that i would have done but it is something that a good player did and let's let's treat it as though it's on purpose and not just like that's a filler card um <laughs> because i think that's sometimes tempting to say nah, i don't know if like they just put the best cards that they could and they won despite of uh despite that what when the truth is closer to uh they played tick and grenadine on one and maybe they played Igen's choice for a four four uh, uh, for a four four um, weapon on turn two, and then on turn four made that ticking granite in into a five five. Then it's starting to look pretty good. So now, more specifically, I would ask Longno if there's like a, a critical mass of one drops and two drops that he feels like he they feel like they need to hit. Um, and so that's kind of how I would look like look at the whole list. And then, yeah, start to ask more specific questions um, because I don't know how to draft for Kano. It could be that you really want to do something on turns one and two and you don't care what it is. So you can play four or five one drops or it could be that you play three and you really don't want to play five. I don't know. Um, so those would be the kind of things that, that I would ask somebody who has more experience with the deck. And then I would I would take that as a data point. I would try to do it myself. I would see if if my games kind of matched up with you know what my experience was like because we deal with very small sample sizes and we try to extrapolate like these large conclusions from you know drafting an archetype just a few times. Um and so yeah, those those are some of now like the more specific questions I would have. Is there a critical mass of units in the one and two drop slot? that you are specifically trying to get to. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're shy about approaching people who are um, who you consider, be, consider to be good players and that you want to learn from, uh, some of them stream, and then they're often happy to answer questions. Um, but also, if you're on a Discord with them uh, or if you just... Uh, send them a friend request in game a lot of people who play this game also love to talk about it and don't have people directly in their physical lives who they can talk about it with <laughs> um, so so they're happy to answer questions you might not get an answer some people are more articulate about their uh, drafting strategies than others uh, but a lot of times people have friended me in game and just sort of like asked me questions and I've answered uh, and it's totally fine That's, I'm really glad that, that you brought that up um because i would hate for somebody to not like ask me a question because maybe they're newer at draft and they they think that it's that maybe i'll think it's a dumb question or a stupid question i promise you i will not um I, I, the thing that i really love about that i've grown to love about eternal so like when i 
just played Magic, um, and I would only watch Magic streamers. Like I'd only watch Ben Stark or Reed Duke or LSV, and I wouldn't even have chat on. I was just watching to see what the professional did and hear their thought process. Um, and when I started watching Eternal streamers, uh, asking streamers questions in Eternal is so efficient because what I found in the, you know, if I'm watching a streamer, I'm watching somebody draft, there's like, you know, if there's 20 people in that are viewing, 10 of them are like on the leaderboards, you know, within like the top 20. Like it's all of the, it's a lot of the, the very serious players are kind helpful people I have found in the eternal community over and over again. Um, and so if somebody is making you feel bad about the questions that you ask, or they're making you feel stupid, um, find someone else to direct your questions towards. Um, please, at least with me, if you want to find me in the discord and, and tag me, um, I, I will not think that your question is dumb. You can feel free to, to ask me anything. Um, especially if if you're confused or you need like something that I wrote is not clear or something that I said on this podcast somehow isn't clear and you need some clarification. Um, I, I am happy, happy to do that, especially for, for newer players. So um, yeah, take advantage of the, of the community that we have. I never, I wouldn't say that I was a very big part of the magic community. I just watched professional magic players um, so I have been pleasantly surprised at every step of the way um, joining the Eternal community, and I do ask a lot of streamers questions. <laughs> that is that is mostly what I use Eternal streamers for. Um, so yeah, use your resources. Uh, the community is great. Please, at least for me, yeah, feel free to reach out to me in the Discord and tag me. I will be happy to answer your questions. Yeah, to, to plug our Discord and sort of what we do with the podcast quickly, I I do think like this really, we didn't even pay Shab to say any of this stuff, but <laughs> this kind of was one of the reasons why we started the seven win deck list ag aggregation is just to give people a place to send in their seven win decks and to use as a resource and then when we created the Discord, one of the nice things about it, and if you do go to the Discord and check the Seven Win channel, like people are constantly commenting about the deck lists, or like not only do people sometimes put a little write up with their deck lists, but then other people ask questions like Shab has been talking about, like, oh, how was this card for you? Or, oh, were you able to like make this clever little combo work? And, you know, everyone who posts Seven Win decks, um, in the Discord are obviously good enough to get seven wins. And like Shab said, like the drafting community in Eternal is very tight. And you will see the same people in the top 20, the top 100 all the time. And those are the, the, the people that are in streams in the Discord posting their seven win deck lists. And if you at them and comment about their deck they're almost always happy to to like respond and sort of are usually especially when you get seven wins more than happy to talk about how great the deck was and what worked and what didn't work and stuff like that so it is an excellent resource and so is the spreadsheet like we i was talking before um the podcast you know we've we have over 
almost 700 decks, seven win decks from this format. And like, that's a valuable resource. You can just scroll through and look at every single Rokano deck that someone has gotten seven wins with to build that model in your head. Um, so, so yeah, use those resources, ask people, use the spreadsheet, you know, that can help you build these models. Um, and this kind of leads to my other question I had sort of touching on something that you you said earlier, Shab, was how eventually in the drafting process, you need to be moving from picking the best cards to picking the best cards in an archetype. And I was, you know, both of you, Hats and Shab, are very good drafters. And I just was hoping you could, how do you make that transition? You know, or like, and even like, when do you make that transition from picking the best card to the best card for the deck or like the model of the deck that you have? Do you mean in terms of when I'm doing a draft or when I'm trying to figure out um, an archetype in a format? I guess I was thinking more of when you're drafting, you know, like when you're drafting and sort of ex, ex I don't even know, even when you're, just like when you're drafting, how do you make that transition to sort of, you're drafting the the best cards in the color to drafting towards an archetype? Well, there, it will change from format to format. So Hats, you know, was talking about how he, I, I think you, like sometimes you don't know what your second, um, like faction is until pack three. Is that correct? Yes. Sometimes so, halfway through pack three. <laughs> and is that because in, in, in this format specifically, like you're just looking for, for playables, right? Yeah. It's because, uh, it's because I'm likely to get cards, um, in packs two and three, especially, uh, that I don't feel sad about cutting from my deck. So it's easier for me to get away from a, a big pile of cards um, in favor of a, a handful of cards that are very strong. Got it. Just just thinking about about my my process. Um, like when I pick my first card, I have an idea of what archetype this card would be best in. Yeah, from the the first card that I pick, and I have like, okay, I this is what I really hope that I want to be in. And then in the second, uh, second choice, I still just take the best card available. Um, and so when kind of when I commit, like I thought that when I wrote, it's time to draft the hard way in eternal, I thought it was a really good, um, the format was in a really good place where these decisions mattered. And one of the examples that I gave was that, Say I'm in pack two and I'm choosing between two time cards. Um, and they're two they're Humbug Nest and they're Gravewatch Ancestor. So both both perfectly defensible ways to spend three power. Um, you can put either of them in any time deck and you will not be unhappy. Um, but in a Xenon ambush deck, one of those cards is far more correct than the other. So if like in that format, if I'm in pack two, pick seven, um, like I am thinking about here's here's what I know about my deck based on the signals I saw in pack one, even if I don't know right now with certainty whether or not I'm Xenon or 
a lesion or Cambrai, I will try to, based on the signals that I read in pack one, um, like if I think it's more likely that I'm going to be in Xenon, then I will take that humbug nest in pack two. So it's tough to say when exactly in a draft you start to um, like definitively say, okay, like I'm valuing, valuing this card more highly because I'm definitely in this archetype. I mean, there is a point in a draft where you have to commit and say like, these are my two, you can't stay open forever. Um, I certain, yeah, like that's how your draft becomes a train wreck. And I, I train wreck sometimes it, it definitely happens. Um, when you just never, when you waffle between three colors and you just end up with a three color mess. Um, so the moment at which you commit, I, I think, you know, varies pretty widely, but from the first card that I pick, I, I have a, an idea of like, yeah, what, what kind of game do I do I want to play with this card in my deck? And then when I pick my second card, I kind of update that. Like, okay, now I have these two cards. What kind of deck might I be building towards? And so I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when it is that I start to to definitively make those choices. But I think that the formats that I enjoy the most are the ones where. Um, you were those decisions that you make, you know, when you, like I said, Humbug Nest and Gravewatch Ancestor are both perfectly defensible ways to spend three power, um, but one being more correct than the other. And those are the kind of small edges that, that I enjoy about a, a draft format. Um, Maybe I'm, there's, I'm not uh, sure. uh, I may have a, a helpful way of looking at it. Um, I think that we might be getting stuck here in, in talking about archetypes, and that is one of the main topics of the show, so it's not like we're stuck, but... Um, when in terms of in terms of the switch from just taking good cards to taking cards that go into an archetype, I think it takes place more like at the beginning, you're taking cards that are likely to fit into a wide range of decks. And I'm taking this from from one of your articles, Shab, where you said like like sometimes value versatility over power. And if you have a tough pick early on in the draft, pick something that is very likely to be played no matter what archetype you're in. After you've taken several cards like that, you're going to notice themes in those cards. Like, oh, you'll have several cards that are very good at blocking on the ground, for example. You have several cards that have ambush back in the olden days when there was an ambush deck. You have several cards that have are flying or have some other kind of evasion. Um, which means that your deck is capable of doing certain types of things pretty consistently. That's going to affect the tougher picks that are coming towards the end of your packs. Like a concrete example, since we were talking about Rakano, is sometimes pack two is going to hook you up with a whole bunch of combat tricks. And combat tricks tend to be good cards on their own, but they have an additional meaning beyond that, which is that your smaller units are now more powerful because they can tangle with larger units and survive. That means that you can have a much lower curve than you otherwise could because your lower uh, your lower cost units are going to be um, are going to be relevant further into the game. Uh, so if you end up with a bunch of combat tricks, that's going to sort of naturally lead you towards an archetype that's very low to the ground and aggressive because that's where the combat tricks are at their best. Um, and you got there 
by taking cards that you were likely to play anyway. If you've got like one combat trick, that doesn't mean that you're in an aggro deck. But if you've got three, that means that you've got the power to do that. You've got the power to draft aggro now. And so the deck that was uh, perhaps a slower strength-based Praxis deck now really wants to be... Well, I guess it's uh, if you're drafting a bunch of Justice cards, uh, then it's not going to be. If it was going to be a, a slower like Huru deck that was going to be more like let's put down a few powerful threats and uh, attack slowly with them uh, once you have a bunch of combat tricks you might want to look at like your fire cards being more important than your primal cards for your mostly justice deck because that's gonna the combat tricks are going to be a little bit more um are going to be a little bit more valuable in that case. You don't have as much evasion in your Rakano deck as you have in your Huru deck, uh, so combat tricks are going to be more valuable. It's that kind of thing. Um, it's not so much that you have identified, hey, maybe I can be in this archetype, especially in a format like this one where the archetypes aren't supported as much. It's more like you've taken a pile of good cards then, and your eye, your experienced eye as a drafter, starts noticing themes in the powerful cards you've picked up and you create an archetype from that. I think that's one of the hardest things for me to do because it's like this is feels almost like more advanced than drafting the hard way on a superficial level of what drafting the hard way is of just like, figuring out what the open colors are and then going and drafting those open colors. Cause I find that I think that's one of my problems with Huru decks is like, I go through pack one and I'm like, wow, justice was really open. And I just like take all the justice cards. And that's one of the things we've talked about in this format is it's really good to end pack one with a lot of one color, you, you know, because, because it allows you to be a little bit more flexible with your other colors. And so I'm like, oh, this is a great start to the draft. And then pack two, I'm like, oh, wow, primal's really open. And then I draft a, a bunch of primal cards. And then in pack four, justice and primal are open. But it, I, I guess I sometimes struggle with, you need more than to like the two colors to be open. You almost also need the right parts of those colors to be open. And, and that's like a, a hard balance to figure out and i really like your explanation hats of like you really need to be constantly thinking about these holes and like how these cards work together because even if like you find the two colors that are open th that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to draft a good deck and you need to really figure out how the cards work together in those two colors too i think yeah, I think I think the most important thing for me in uh, right now, uh, uh, in the I mean, drafting is very complicated. Is is just is just like keeping a, a, a sort of a mental tab of what my deck is actually good at right now, because <laughs> it's because like you like you were saying at the very beginning at the very beginning of this episode, you can draft a deck with a bunch of good cards, and then what your opponent does is so much better and it's because their deck happens to be good at a thing whereas your deck was pretty good at a few things and then maybe well i just want to walk walk that whole thing back because i wasn't going anywhere with it always a yeah, i really liked where you're going with when you started with touching back on a thing you said earlier i know i know 
Well, it was just because I was thinking I was thinking that you had several ancient serpents in this deck, and then you were overwhelmed by Omen Scarworm. You were already your deck was good at something, right? It was good at putting out flyers and getting spells out of your void, right? It's getting it's it, you were you were playing a lot of things that were flyers that that drew cards. Your deck was very good at doing that. Your opponent's deck was very good at playing massive units um, and then attacking with them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was a better, which was a good strategy against the, a deck that's very good at playing flyers that draw cards, <laughs> you know, because your your cards that you're drawing with your flyers have to be able to handle a, an incoming 8-8. Eight eight. And uh, so I think that sort of plays to, uh, that sort of, that sort of, um, what sort of plays to the idea of if your deck is good at something, make sure that it's very good at it. Like if you're going to be getting back spells from your void, make sure those spells win the game for you. Um, and like here, you don't have removal for eight eights. Maybe it's not available. Uh, so that's why that, that's why that didn't work out. Uh, I really I really feel like, like I'm trapped in this explanation now. <laughs> in, like in very simple terms. It goes back to what LSV talks about all the time, which is have a plan. And I think people, you know, when they go through their draft, they get they get stuck in this. Um, take the best card, take the best card, take the best card, take the best card. Um, but it comes back to like you you have to build um, you have to draft decks, not cards. I think constantly asking yourself, like, how what do I want the, the like how do I win games with this deck? Like, what do I want the games to look like? What does a normal sequence of plays looks like? And this is why drafting mid-range decks is so difficult because some of them win with flyers and some of them just win with huge creatures. And if you never make a decision about kind of what your deck's plan is, um, you just end up with a very average mid-range deck, which is fine. Like that's, a lot of what I what I advocate for um, is just building building mid range decks. I I think to summarize a few of our points, the third summary. Let's see if we can do it. With the third let's, let's see what we we have. It's a difficult question. I think is what we can conclude. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think to summarize this topic more generally, there's drafting is difficult. So there's a lot of things that you need to think about. You know, first off. There's sort of what um, Eric and Hats talked about last week, where you can do a lot of pre-play work of like finding, you know, figuring out like when you're drafting aggro decks, the key number, or like looking at the Z, you know, you look at the time in the shadow cards and you're like, oh, obviously, you know, I want to play stuff on my opponent's turn and then to see if there's a critical mass of those kind of cards. So there's like this, a lot of interesting um, sort of pre-play work that you can do to just get a sense of the format. And for further reference, um, there's a another Magic the Gathering podcast that I I talk about sometimes called Lords of Limited and they did an interview with Sam Black and he talked about his process in Magic the Gathering um, where he'll take all of the sort of the commons in a set and sort of build his ideal deck 
with just like one one or two copies of all the commons and maybe an uncommon or two. And that just gives him a sense of whether he thinks like an archetype is actually supported or not. You know, like in um, in Magic, you know, like blue-white flyers is a deck a lot. And so you can just look at the blue and the white commons and then you, you can see if there are there a lot of flyers. Like if if you're building a deck of just commons, can you get a critical mass of, of flyers and make a deck? I think that's a little easier in Magic because Magic doesn't have all of the, doesn't have draft packs and doesn't have different rare, you know, all of these weird boosted numbers and stuff to make it a little harder. It makes it a little harder in Eternal, I think, to get a good sense of what you're actually going to get in pack two or three to really fully develop that. But I do think, first off, it's an interesting episode to listen to. And I think it's a it's a good way to look at how to do this sort of pre-work uh, when coming up with like what you think architects will be. And then sort of like what Shab talked about with, you know, looking at seven win decks, um, you know, there are other people who are draft a lot and they're posting their deck lists or they're streaming a lot. And you can look at what you can look at their actual deck lists and see what's being successful in the different archetypes and ask them questions. So like that's another another way to sort of get a better grasp of the different archetypes before you even play the game. And then I think I, the, oh sorry Shab, you wanted to say something? I, I did because um so, sorry to interrupt you, but we've mentioned Eric uh, a couple of times now and I've been joking around because he's been streaming in the morning before I start teaching my kids and I've been saying like it's like I'm attending agro school in the morning and he keeps telling me that he doesn't have anything to teach me in, in this format but uh, I don't think that's true but the real reason that I'm so excited to watch Eric draft is we want to do very different things when we approach a limited format like there are overheating mini bout players and there are Valley Clan Sage players. And I am a Valley Clan Sage player. Um, but I'm excited to watch Eric like do these drafts and play these games because I'm very because I want to know his process. When when he looks at a draft pack, I want to know what cards he is considering um, because it is likely way different from what I am considering when when I'm looking at a pack. So I think that even though I've put in a lot of work um, into my draft game overall, I the people I've modeled my game after tend to be more mid-rangey controlling players. I haven't watched a lot of a lot of aggro players. And so so I, I do. I attend aggro school. I listen to the way that he evaluates cards as he puts his deck together. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I I'm trying to to still improve my own game is I, I find people who I think are better at aspects of it than I am. And I watch and I listen and I ask a lot of annoying questions. <laughs> yeah. And then I the third point that I just wanted to, you know, highlight and summarize is just then the last thing that we were saying is once you're in the draft, you need to be constantly, you know, Drafting is not just about finding the open colors, but it's 
finding the pieces to fill out your deck to make a deck. And, you know, Shab was talking about that, like that starts with pick one. He's picking cards. He's not just he's not just picking by color. He's as soon as he's picking a card, he's thinking about where this fits in to a possible future deck. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things to do. And but it's the thing you need to do to like learn how to draft these archetypes is, you know, you do this pre-work and then then when you're ready, then when you're you find yourself in these colors, you know, you then have the tools to be like figuring out what cards you need to take, what holes you need to fill. And then you draft the deck, you do well, you, you do poorly. And you use that to help you further evaluate, like, oh, what did I feel like this deck needed? What did I have too many of? Like, what cards got stuck in my hand? And then that helps you further refine sort of your knowledge of the archetype so that the next time you draft it, you know, you're hopefully a little bit better. And obviously there's variants. Sometimes you have a great deck and it just does poorly. And you need to take all of that into account because like we like Sunnyvale said, you know, we're dealing with such small sample sizes that we need to extrapolate a lot from very little information. But that's like what sort of distinguishes the good players from the great players. And then that's what we're all trying to do. Um, yeah. So I guess that's how I would summarize everything we've said here today. Right. Not, not only are you. What makes it extremely difficult is not only are you trying to take information from extremely small sample sizes, but you can't even trust the results. Like, you can't just go, well, I won that game. I guess all my decisions were good. Or I lost that game. I guess my decision was wrong. Um, if Because if you analyze your decisions based on the results that way, you will hit your ceiling in these games very quickly. So you're dealing with, with really small sample sizes. You're dealing, <clears throat> yeah, so you're dealing with really small sample sizes. You're also dealing with really, um, with a lot of biases and, and emotion. Um, yeah, so th there's, there's a lot working against you. It's why these games are, are so difficult to, um, to improve at. So that's our show. So uh, thank you, Shab, so much for coming on and talking draft and archetypes with us. We really appreciate it. No problem. I will risk this by saying again, anytime you guys want to talk limited, go ahead and invite me on. Um, this this tends to be a, a pretty good night for me. So hopefully yeah, I will have sooner rather than later, since uh, we only got through half of your show notes. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a couple things to say about limited. So Abinago, I will expand on a deliberate practice in another piece of another episode or a written piece when i get to it so Sometime. so thank you again to all of our patrons for making this show a success and for everyone who says anything in discord we really appreciate it it's a great place we're glad you're there um, yeah there's been a lot of conversation lately and it's great yes. yeah jump yep. in and jump in and be part of it yeah i won't speak for others but you can feel free to tag me if you have questions um and if and if you have follow-up questions please don't hesitate. I'll be happy to answer them. Yeah, just do not put Touch of Resilience in your deck or he will not, in fact, answer any of your questions. 
<laughs> yeah, don't you? <laughs> That's the deal breaker. <laughs> the line in the sand. Um, I'll only help up at a certain point. You can't help people that don't want to be helped, you know? <laughs> All right. And, uh, yeah, so that's the plug for the Discord. Finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts, uh, which she diligently posts every week for us, which I think really helps expand, uh, you know, gets people to see the show. And uh, don't forget to send in all your seven win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Have a good night. Goodbye. Happy drafting. Cool. Crushed it, guys, I think. <laughs>